Yes, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another brand new Rugby Muscle Podcast. I'm your host, as always, TJ, and I said I was going to come away from doing these intros, but this podcast definitely does require an introduction, although the man himself, Dr. Scott Stevenson, who is my guest for this podcast today, requires no introduction. This guy is an absolute genius when it comes to the realm of hypertrophy, because he is probably the most well-read and one of the most well-respected guys when it comes to the world of bodybuilding, growing muscle, and the scientific nature of all of that, but also like the practical nature of different personality types, different things available to you. Um, like we, That's what we start off this podcast talking about was my experience of training. And uh, I knew that Scott is just an absolute continual fountain of knowledge so i knew as soon as i had uh, he picked up the uh, the zoom call that i had to hit record so we went from there so there was no real big introduction the theme behind this podcast was the mechanisms of hypertrophy exactly how you can grow and dr scott delves into the science of that but we also go quite a bit all over the place where we discuss all the different science around gaining muscle personality types and this is just a really good deep dive into the world of science and strength and conditioning, but muscle gaining in general and biology. It's, 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 we go pretty deep. I really hope you enjoy this one. I really enjoyed recording it. If you did, as always, go give us a five-star review. This will help me because I do want to get Dr. Scott back on. And if you have any questions, ask them on the review section or you can ask them on the Ruppy Muscle Athletes Facebook page. I really enjoyed enjoy, uh, recording this podcast because Dr. Scott was someone I wanted to get on for a long while. So I'm really glad he could make the time for us. This is a two-parter because we really went into depth with this. So the first part will come out to... Well, it's out now. You're listening to it, right? <laughs> um and the second part will come out next week. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss it. And with that, let's get into it. Um, if I can just go to this place four times a week, I can spend more time actually training and getting it all done properly. And why not do that? Especially with my, because I'm, yeah, the move that's coming up at the end of the month. Right. Yeah. I tell you what, I mean, I've got some clients now. Actually, one guy in the UK is popping popping in my mind and he's been training at home you know he gradually built things up and now he can go back to his gym and he's just he's blowing his previous lifts out of the water awesome um yeah which um and what it's what part of that i think really has come down to the fact that he's just been doing basic barbell shit just been doing squats and deads um and variations thereof because he didn't have any have any choice in the matter and now he sort of redeveloped some of that basic core strength that, that he may have been lacking previously. And it's showing up because he's just destroying his logbook. So, and then is he, is he a bodybuilder? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that manifests in his uh, physique. I, I've seen it. Well, I mean, I, I've seen it in his back without a doubt. Like, his oh, back yeah. is like great. I'm like, well, he's been moving around, like trying to find, you know, we try to find different places for his, uh, his progress picks. And finally, he found a good spot in his house, and I had to go back and look at some of the other ones to see that it wasn't just the location, the lighting. And I'm like, and I think he'd been because of oh, he had a he had a he had a I think his kid got sick, and then he had some business stuff that kind of threw him off. So it was like three or four weeks between a check in, which was unusual. But he kept training the whole time mm-hmm. um, on target, and I'm like, what the fuck did you do to your back? <laughs> What in the hell? And it's nothing. He just kept on training and eating, and but he's doing doing deadlifts every week and squats every week, pretty much. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So you can get it done, man. Like just people, um, anyway, we maybe save this for the podcast, but it's, I see a lot of people who, who just, they, they go right for the fancy shit and they, and they steer away from the basic core stuff. And that's, you know, that's meat and potatoes for many, many people. Oh yeah. I mean, so the way I always do this podcast is I just hit, especially I knew, I knew this was going to happen with you that we would strike on some gold before we'd even like officially started the podcast, like quote unquote, but I always hit record like as soon as, uh, as soon as I start the zoom because good call. Yeah. We always miss out on these things. So Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, this is the start then. So, um, I I would have already introduced you beforehand anyways. So, I do think that your story is rather unique at how you ended up like coaching the way you do and um, how you became like, as far as like bodybuilding gurus or, or hypertrophy gurus, I think you've got to, like, you, you've got to be in the, the top set tier of those. So um, how did you find yourself in, in this situation that you're in? Well, for, for, guru is a four letter word. I don't like that a lot, but <laughs> yeah. it's funny because you, you mentioned, um, you know, that I've kind of ended up sort of in a neat place in the way that I coach, which mm. is sort of an anti-guru type of stance. Oh, and actually that's, that's exactly why I wanted to get you on It's because I, that's what I love about like the information that you put out. It's like, there is no, um, absolutes in anything that you've, I don't think you've ever preached apart from you got to do something, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some pretty, you know, I think progressive overload, which is kind of an interesting notion actually in, in the way uh, it can be understood as two, two sides of the, of the same coin, but that's kind of a basic core one, you know, mm-hmm. that I think sticks. But other than that, it's, there's so much biological individuality that um, although people really want, like, tell me what to do. Give me a black and white. Like, I don't want to have to think. Yeah. which is which is sometimes can be a good thing because people could overthink but when you when you remove your own ability to step in and make decisions then you're removing one of your most important tools in yeah. my mind and i i talked with someone um recently who's uh has been training for years and years and years he's a pro and he was he was looking for and he doesn't uh, doesn't talk with too many people doesn't take advice from too many people, but he was totally willing and he, and he meant this as, as the utmost compliment to just do what exactly what I said. And I, and mm-hmm. I said, well, the first thing that I would like to do is make sure that we include your opinion because you've been in there during every single one of your training sessions for decades. You know what works, what doesn't work, what you can get away from, what you shouldn't be trying to continue to do. Like your wisdom is going to far supersede mine um, mm-hmm. in so many ways. And people just, they just give that up. I think in many, in many cases, um, maybe because it, it can be, a, it's a very difficult puzzle to figure out in many cases to just, you know, spend years and years trying to like chip away, especially because it's a changing puzzle. Yeah. Um, those who've competed know that like each prep can be different and each decade of your life is different. So you have to constantly be, be learning and changing and adapting what worked in your 20s, what worked in your 30s, what worked in your 40s. But, but still, you're there. So um, to give up on that information that you've accumulated, even if it's just like a year's worth of training, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and not, not at least provide that to someone who's helping you call that person a coach or what have you, um, I think is, is missing out on a lot of possibilities for progress. 
and just enjoying the endeavor too. So, yeah. and that enjoyment aspect, that's like one of the biggest in, into individualities that we're going to come across as well. Right. It's, Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and you oh. can't say, Hey, you've got to enjoy this or you enjoy <laughs> it. Like it's not going to work. Like, sorry. No, you know, but, yeah, uh, I mean, the, the thing about, like, for instance, the, 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 the best example of that that I can think of off the top of my head is DC training, which was something I did for years. Mm-hmm. You read the Fortitude training book. If yep. people don't know, that's dog crap training. You can Google that, and they'll find. There's been, uh, there's been stuff that Dante Trudell, who, who invented DC training, wrote that's been translated into I don't know how many languages. I think someone said, like, they found it in, like, 27 languages or something like that, and that was a decade no ago. Way. Yeah, yeah. It's, every, it's funny, like... You know, it's just as an aside, I speak German, so I would read the German boards every once in a while. And there was like in one of the, on one of the German bodybuilding boards, there was an entire fortitude training forum that was, that I, that I did, wasn't aware of. It had been around for quite a while. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, I, I went on, went into the forum and I just, I introduced myself and posted and, um, actually my post, my post got deleted. I think they didn't think it was me, um, which I thought was funny because one of the moderators uh, knew it was me. He listened, he'd heard me on podcast speak German and he's like, Oh, that's really you. And, but he didn't do anything about it. So I, I never, I didn't go back there because they I think deleted a couple of my posts, but so yeah, things are people, people look to America in various countries as sort of a, somewhat of a guiding light because, you know, we've got so much bodybuilding history. Yeah. But I brought up DC training because it's it's something that if you really kind of like digging in and you know putting on your gladiator gladiator cap and going to town you know and just trying to defeat gravity so to speak yeah um, in a very sort of primitive way then it's perfect for your mentality because you, you you enjoy that it's a it's kind of a pretty crazy ride getting on under heavier and heavier weights each time you go into the gym or trying to at least for each and every exercise. It's like the penultimate progressive overload system for that's available now for most people to kind of, uh, kind of tap into. But some people just, that's not how they want to train. They just, they just, they, they could do, it might be physiologically, genetically the best way for them to grow if they did everything that, that Dante has suggested, but if they don't like it, yeah, they won't do it. So it, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a moot point. You have to you have to find the thing that you can you can do continuously that's sustainable that also of course produces progress ideally um, if you're gonna if it's gonna work for you in a, yeah. from a bodybuilding perspective at least so yeah having fun is like it's the thing about fortitude training that I'm super happy about is that so many people just like it yeah I'm, I'm one of those people yeah right for so. Sure. It may not be magical. Like I tried to, you know, piece some things together as best I could that made sense given experience and, and the science that was available at the time and it still holds, I think pretty well. But the fact that you dig it is, it probably is as important, if not more important than some of the base, as long as you don't, as long as you don't have an absolutely awfully constructed program. That's just like asinine, um, which most people wouldn't enjoy necessarily then liking the program so that you stick with it and you want to continue to get better at it, meaning you want to progress is it's gotta be, I think number one for most people. Yeah. So yeah, having fun is important. It's actually one of the, 
most important things that I actually ask my guys when I'm coaching them is like, how are you enjoying the program? Does this look like something that you're going to be able to stick with for four to eight weeks or, or 12 weeks or whatever it is? Like, it, you know, and then it's part of the, the, I have a lower level program as well that like, it's kind of, it's, it's somewhat generic, but it's geared towards rugby players. I say part of the appeal is that you feel like it's helping you with your rugby game when you're in the gym, which then right. makes it more enjoyable, which then, leads to you sticking with it for, you know, ideally years on end and getting those results. Mm -hmm. And like, that's one of the things, and this actually brings us back around to your sort of introduction (laughs) in a really long way is that we could talk about like how that's something that it's very difficult to measure in traditional science, you know, like effects of enjoyment of a training program on, uh, you know, the results that that training program is trying to produce. Like, I don't think that's something that exists, or maybe I'm wrong. There, there. I'm trying to remember that there was a study that looked into that, and I'm trying to remember the know details. About it. <laughs> yeah, there, there was. It was only published in the last year or two. I could. Probably, oh, really? Yeah. If you give me a, um, a few minutes, we won't, we won't spend the time now, but I could probably dig it up and either post, send it to you, or post it on the board. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah they, they have looked at that, you know, and and I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember the details of the study, but. I, I, there's so many, there, there are a number of things that I think kind of get left out sometimes that just questions like that, like a basic, basic question. So the thing that is most interesting about the research, I think at least from someone who's, you know, trying to apply it is, are what are the things about the training methodology that I can take to, to, to make my training more effective mm-hmm. and, so like, if you look at like, so what are the, what are the factors that predict muscle growth? And they've, you know, there's a bunch of things that I can get into like related to satellite cell proliferation and muscle protein synthesis and the number of different genetic uh, markers that, that actually even talk about, you know, the effects of that anabolic steroids might have things like the energy receptor genes that you have and things of that nature too. But I think, that would be a wonderful one just to look at. It's like who, who made the most progress. And you can imagine if like you're going into the lab, let's say to train like four or five times a week or three times a week, and you're just dreading it. You're like, man, I don't like these guys. Like this is not very much fun. Just can't wait to get out of there. You, you tend to sandpag, you know, that's mm-hmm. not gonna, that's, that's not going to mean progress. Whereas you're like, this is so much fun. Like this is so interesting. Like, I think I'm going to go and study this stuff. You know, I, I'm going to change majors, you know, because most of the, a lot of times college students are the subjects in many of these studies are easy to get. And they're on location basically. Mm-hmm. And that person is going to, they're going to grow like a weed. Yeah. They're going to make great progress. So it's an obvious one, but I, I really, it would really be interesting to see in just like as sort of a side marker, when the goal is to, as a physiologist, to look at the physiological variables that may predict um, outcomes, but the psychological variables like that are the things that exercise psychologists um, will look into. But those those uh, disciplines don't always overlap. It's it was funny the there's a I could just name because he's a phenomenal physiologist. His name was Ed Coyle, and he did a lot of you can dig him up C O Y L E. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of the early research on um, exercise metabolism during endurance exercise, and uh, he he actually was sponsored by Gatorade for years. So they did a lot of solid research looking at carbohydrate during exercise, and um, 
was able to delineate like what what's going on when like a marathon runner will bonk when they run out mm-hmm. of glycogen. How you can prevent that by taking carbohydrate, like a lot of the early like basic core stuff that now is applied by endurance athletes, cyclists, and runners pretty much universally. And he was talking about like every once in a while you get asked a question, and he, he literally he laughed because he was very self aware. But I remember him just talking about the brain as a big black box, <laughs> like it's <laughs> like it's like ah oh, you know we just can't you know we can't really there's just nothing there you know like that we that we can really get at and that was and that he knew that that wasn't really the case but that's what physiologists do they just say we're just gonna let, we're not worry about that and look for the things in the body but there's a guy who's a, actually started off as a and and is still an exercise physiologist by the name of timothy noakes who's from south africa South African guy yeah 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 he's a phenomenal guy and he's got a um uh, a really nice article. He's done some of this research where he basically sums up um, various psychological parameters that seem to um, seem to be the way he the way he sums up. He makes a really strong argument is that the brain literally is the governor on performance mm-hmm. and our psychological perceptions of things. So, like you can do things like have people um, like cyclists who are really well trained. These are like you know top of their sport, top of the endeavor type athletes and have them go with a pacer, like if they're cyclists. And the, if the pacer is, so is a, is, goes a little bit faster than them. Um, so they're riding along and they've got like this, they're competing against, you know, the computer who's mm-hmm. another, you know, virtual cyclist, so to speak, they will go faster and they'll, they'll maintain that pace. They'll do it. And they can, you can improve that perform, performance that way. And take this into the gym, like, pardon my French, but I, you know, have said before, it would be, my ideal training partner is someone who would, quote, unquote, make me his bitch every day. Yeah. Because he'd be bigger and stronger and, like, just basically be able to outdo me in a way that that wouldn't force me to try to, you know, do stupid shit in the gym, but that would, you know, force me to try to, would, would have that psychological effect um, that you just can't get if you don't have, have another person there. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to progressive overload being one of the the key tenants, like or maybe the key thing if we're trying to build muscle. And it look then that would go back to like especially when you're looking at professional athletes, even in because I always think about like rugby players about how you don't see any skinny professional rugby players; it just doesn't exist anymore. Right, And, and even positions where. Hyper, you would imagine that hypertrophy isn't that much of a benefit. Like they're still in there. And I think it's just because when they're getting in their strength and conditioning workouts, like they'll be relatively competitive with each other. And then mm-hmm. they just got the, you know, so much recovery in place that they're always still going to be able to grow. Um, but you could also then look at it from the other side of the coin is that maybe they're just professional rugby players already because they're already in decent shape, you know, or they have good genetics and obviously genetics is what, uh, you know, even more so of a governing factor because you have people that, you know, essentially just turn 18 and are already jacked and everything and they've never right. even stepped foot in the gym. Yeah. I, I mean, I would suspect it's, um, it's probably a combination, you know, interaction of the two. Yeah. If you look at like, you know, American football players are a good example. You've got sort of body. Um, and actually the, if you look, if you read, there's a book called the sports gene that goes into this mm-hmm. um, pretty substantially. It looks at things like, like a great example is is Michael Phelps, and he has uh, um, relative arm length to leg length that's extraordinary, 
And, and I think, I don't know if he actually qualifies for this, but there's, there's a uh, connective tissue disorder called Marfan syndrome, where that's a, uh, um, something that you see. And that relative long arm length to leg length is extremely ad- advantageous for swimming um, because, you know, because of what the arms do relative to the legs when you're in the water. So you see all these phenotypes, these body types, call them somatotypes, not thinking like in the terms of endoectomesomorph type of thing, but you see these being the dominant um, advantageous way in which the body, body is sort of the phenotype of the body is for different mm-hmm. sports. So yeah, rugby is like a combination. It's kind of like, it's kind of like this is an aside relative to bodybuilding and, and I think even rugby too, like CrossFit, the best CrossFit athletes are have ridiculous physiques yeah and so the 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 thing that we we just sort of assume is a cause and effect there that training with crossfit made them look like pretty high level bodybuilders but i don't but it just so happens i think in many of those like those are great athletes you look at their their background they were just genetically gifted in the first place yeah a lot of them come from like a track and field background or a swimming background like already so had had some success at a sport that requires like some sort of ridiculous uh, physiology in the first place to be successful. Right, right. Yeah. So you take your, your average person who doesn't who doesn't have those those genetic gifts, who doesn't look like that, and they they want to look literally. They want to gain more muscle and drop body fat. And we mm-hmm. we sort of know that if you really want to do that, the best way to do that is to train like a bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Do bodybuilding training. Now, not that you can't get really, really fit doing CrossFit. It's friggin' tremendous as long as you don't hurt yourself in the process. People tend to go overboard. And that's kind of a another another topic there. It's injury injury potential can be high there if, if folks don't know what they're doing. This is not that that it's always the case, but probably for the average person who wants to gain muscle mass, CrossFit's not going to be the way to do that. Right. Um, and we can that was that might even be a segue into the mechanisms of muscle growth. But those people who are the who are the best CrossFitters just have that natural gift um, for lots of muscle mass, and it helps them um, because they have that, and they're doing things that are sort of a muscular endurance or even sort of an endurance type events, and having more muscle, basically having a bigger engine to drive that performance that may not be one that necessarily stimulates having a bigger engine. It's not the best for muscle hypertrophy along the spectrum of potential exercise stimuli that could provoke muscle growth just means that those, those athletes are going to be better at it, but it doesn't mean that you should train like they, like they are currently training in order to look like them. So that's beautiful. And I don't think, I think CrossFit's phenomenal because it it gets that sort of, there's a a collective, it it taps into our tribalism, which we're missing to some degree, at least sort of in a healthy way in, Mm -hmm. in society. Um, we've got plenty been floating around now that's not probably helping us out as a, you know, as a, a, a species, we're going to be around for too, too much longer, but yeah, for sure. It, it's a, you know, a nice, good group cohesive. And, and those guys just, they just love each other. They have a, a blast from what I've seen. Um, it can be a little bit cultish too sometimes, but overall it's, I think it's a kind of a good, it's a good thing. So I'm not, I'm not knocking CrossFit. But I've always just found that kind of interesting because that's that's a big selling point, um, which I think is a little bit of a, a physiological misnomer. I think there's two different types of CrossFit, in my opinion. Like there's the CrossFit, the the you know the local box that mum 
goes to after dropping the kids off at school and gets in good shape and you know does something that is a lot better than just standing on the elliptical for 30 minutes a day or whatever mm-hmm. and then there's the crossfit games which is essentially it's like a showcase you could also compare it to bodybuilding where mm-hmm. it's the it's like the showcase of what the human body is capable of and you know there's obviously training and whatnot and other things that go into it but i also just think it's it is just a show like you know you look on the mr olympia stage like those guys aren't training overly different to what probably thousands of people as, as i'm sure you can attest to mm-hmm. um you know they're not necessarily training harder or any special way compared to thousands of different bodybuilders all around the world but they're showcasing what the body is capable of at elite levels. And then yeah. that goes perfectly into your, uh, you know, sort of what causes hypertrophy and the sort of basics and your entire background, how you got into it. Yeah. There's a, uh, one of my favorite talks that I, that I give is, uh, I entitled it why you don't look like a pro. <laughs> and then the subtitle is, you know, something like, you know, why you don't play in the NBA while you're not, you know, a major league baseball player, why you're not a world-class concert pianist, why you aren't a rocket scientist with NASA, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. All these things that, you know, people really know you like, you got to have some genetic gifts in order to be top of the field, top, you know, best in the world for those sorts of things. But, and at the, uh, one of the first slides I have in there, I went back, it's been a few years now, but I went back <clears throat> and traced the histories of the top 10 of the Mr. Olympia. And like the average time from first show to getting their pro card was three and a half years. And actually, I I think it was Sean Roden and one other competitor um, had had like a five or seven year um, layoff or time away from the from the sport. And so if you took those those years out, some, you know, personal things happened. Then it was like two and a half years. So first show to pro card. Hmm. And this is a few years ago. Now it's, you can get a pro card much, and this is in bodybuilding too. So that's, that's, those are genetic gifts. Like you don't just like the average person doesn't ever earn a pro card in bodybuilding, much less in two and a half years. Yeah. So yeah, there's a huge genetic component there. They just grow better. A lot of the times the stories you hear about pros is sometimes we'll just like, they, they were in the gym and someone said, Hey, there's a show. You're getting ready for the show this weekend. Like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what that is. Like, you want me to stand up my underwear in front of people? What kind of crazy question is that? And, but they decided to go do it and they win. Yeah. Did you After hear Ronnie week? Coleman on the, he was on the Joe Rogan experience. Yeah. And he said the same thing. He said, his, I think is the guy who owned the gym that he went to just said, Hey, listen, I'll give you free membership if you compete and show off my gym. <laughs> right. Brian Dobson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hi guys, I just wanted to jump in here to tell you that if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to become a better athlete, then you can go ahead and visit rugby-muscle.com and pick up any of our free goodies. That is uh, the 50 free rugby conditioning sessions, the physique nutrition crash course video series, the supplement guide, and newly added is a macro calculator. Yes, that's right. A macro calculator where you will be able to work out your protein, carbs, fat, and calories that you should be eating on a daily basis to give you a guide as to where to start your diet from. This will help in conjunction with your 50 free conditioning sessions to build you out a decent little plan that will enable you to take control of your training and use effective training and nutrition to become a better athlete. All that stuff and more can be found at rugby-muscle.com or rugby-muscle.com forward slash macros for the macro breakdown. 
And he said they're out like walking. Um, they're at a park and there's like a little jungle gym there. And he looked over, he told me this story. I'm like, oh man. And she's like, I think she's like nine, maybe 10. And she's like, daddy, this is fun. And she's, she bangs out like 10 pull-ups, <laughs> like just like playing around, you know, cause that's what she just had that in her, you know, yeah. she had daddy's genetics. So yeah, so there is a lot like as far as the do you want to you want to dig in on on like mechanisms of muscle growth or what? Yeah, let's do it. So yeah, okay. we yeah, I think um I think we can look at mechanisms of muscle growth to start with and sort of introduce that and then we can sort of go from there. Yeah, well, there's a it's a still very very valid um research or review article that Brad Schoenfeld put out. God, it's been it's been a while now, but he sort of broke it down into three main things. And there's some information that I can kind of throw in to update that. He's actually got another review that he did, which is much more molecular biology based. But the three mechanisms that he sort of put together were tension, which is one that most people are really pointing to is just simply sort of a basic understanding is that you go in the gym and you pick up a weight, let's say you can do lift 10 or 12 times and no more that is so far beyond what most people would do or have ever done if they haven't lifted weights in terms of what they're picking up, the load that is being placed on the muscles that are doing the lifting, that it's just absolutely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You look, think of like, you know, let, let's say, you know, the average person, if they don't have a, a manual labor type job, they might, they might pick up groceries, you know, like, like I mean, even I, I'm one of those guys, like I go to the grocery store and I see how few trips I can take. So I carry like, you know, yeah. eight bags in each hand, <laughs> but, but, but even then, like, you know, that's as many as I can fit. And it's still maybe, you know, 60 pounds in a hand. Yeah. Um, you know, right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I'm dragging in the, and that's most people would just do like one grocery bag. So 10 pounds, something like that. But those, those people could, could shrug 200 pounds. Perhaps they really, they really pushed it. So we're talking about like a many fold increase in the tension that's produced when you go in the gym compared to the thing that you, you ever really be, uh, uh, have to do during day to day life. And you don't see people, it's just not, it's not socially acceptable, at least in, in most, um, you know, first world countries to like, like be, to be screaming and yelling, you know, or, or pushing so hard you know, that you can no longer lift something and you're literally dropping it. Mm -hmm. um, so the effort levels are that high. So the tension is, is just tremendous. And that can't really even be, um, it can't be overstated, I don't think. Uh, the other, the other or big one is metabolic stress. So when you have maximal efforts like that or near maximal efforts, um, the energy demand there, so the rate at which you need to provide ATP just to fuel those contractions is also extraordinary. And some of the interesting findings is, and they've done this in Japan now for many, many years. You, have you heard of Katsu training? Yes. Blood flow restriction? Yeah. yeah. So it's really, it's really interesting because, I mean, they, they do this. It was uh, um, sort of invented as a, a rehab technique, and they still have, they have special Katsu clinics there in Japan. Oh really? Employ this, yeah, yeah. It's like that's sort of the specialty. So if you if you blood flow restrict, you don't want to completely clue, but if you restrict the blood flow to skeletal muscle during during exercise, you uh, you prevent the release of metabolites 
And so metabolites remaining there is what you would then call metabolic stress. So the pH will, will go down, lactic acid or lactate will accumulate. And then if you're looking at glycolysis, so the main energy supply system that's going to provide ATP during high energy demand, high effort contractions, like when you're lifting weights, those basically that you're going to slow down the extent to which you can provide ATP there because you have to have movement through those enzymatic reactions in order to make the ATP. And if right. the metabolites uh, get out into the bloodstream carried away, then you reduce the rate you can produce the ATP. What that means then is you cause fatigue in those fibers that are being used. And in order to keep doing the exercise, whatever it might be, you have to call upon other fibers. Mm -hmm. So the thing that was really kind of interesting is that uh, when people were first looking at this, you can like lift really light loads. So let's say someone's, you know, got a, they're mending a broken bone and they've been casted for a while. You want to kind of bring back the, the muscle around the joint that might've been, been isolated or mobilized. You can use really, really light loads with the blood flow restriction. And instead of using X number of muscle fibers or motor units to do that, the blood flow restriction means that you will call upon motor units that wouldn't normally be called upon until you got to, uh, until you're lifting heavier loads, at least initially, or until you, you pushed really, really hard and got closer to muscular failure. So you know, let's say you've got a hundred motor units available and without blood flow restriction, for X number of reps, you might end up calling upon 30, 40, or 50 of those, something like that. Maybe you start with 30 by the end of the set, you get to 50. With the blood flow restriction, uh, you might start the initial set and, do, and, and use 30 of those. And then by the end of that set, you might use 60. And the standard protocol that they use in a lot of the research is they just leave the blood flow restriction in place. So these are, have you ever done blood flow restriction before? Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fucking painful. It's like, it's a categorically different stimulus, man. It's mm -hmm. ca calves are like one of the worst. Like calves are just mind boggling. Oh, the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. I have to say, yeah, just like as a, as an aside, there is some possibility of a clot happening because you're basically slowing down the movement of blood flow through the venous system. So yeah, yeah you know, it's just, just be aware of that. I'm not suggesting people go out and do this now and try to, um, best like um, uh, what's Mario's last name? Um, there are some people I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, uh, there's some Mario Novo is actually someone you N O V O. You can look him up. He's sort of the at least in the social media sphere. I think in general too, he's he's getting to be quite a well-known figure and an authority on blood flow restriction. He uses it in a physical therapy setting in various ways. So if you want to dig into that, just find any of his podcasts, and he will. You'll inundate you with all the mechanisms that are involved here. What's going on? But the point being, it's a, it's an advanced technique, right? Yeah, but I would I would say so. I mean, it's it's pretty simple to do once you once you figure it out. Um, mm -hmm. there have been studies suggesting you can just sort of use, um, like knee wraps and that sort of thing, and and you can replicate. But then there's mixed opinions on that, and I would listen to what Mario has to say. He likes to be very particular with that, so you can control the pressure. There are devices, medical devices you can get, um, basically similar to a blood pressure cuff, so kind of a sphygmomanometer that will allow you to control that pressure because you just for the sake of safety. Yeah. You don't want the blood to completely pool. There was a there was a guy once that I I've heard some funny stories. There was a guy once who would just leave 
the um, the wraps around his legs for like a half an hour leg training session. Jesus. Yeah, and I, I mean, it can't. He couldn't have had them on there too long because you know the, what the pain's like if you if that's you what wrap. I was thinking. I was like, that that's he's either like not got them on tight enough or not like doing any. Oh. Right. It's just like so. Like so, so. I don't know what what he was actually accomplishing. He maybe just sort of left them on there, thinking it might help a little bit. Who knows? And then you can draft them too tight. You know, you get like you get all amped up. You know, this is going to hurt. You just tighten it down. Like I got to get like you don't want to progressively overload how tight you're wrapping. For instance, if you're going to use that procedure, but if you do that, then you could end up wrapping too tight. So that shouldn't be something that changes yeah. over time. And that's that one be, of the things as well is that like if you're if you're questioning yourself as to whether you've wrapped it too tight and you're questioning whether it's safe or not, then like how much can you really apply to the training that you because it's going to hurt. But if you're, especially if you're like not overly trained and especially in this area, it's, you know, it could actually, you know, take away from the training that you're trying to produce anyway, because this is, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a roundabout way of causing something that you can cause just with higher rep uh, or burnout style training anyway. Yes. And that, that's the, that's, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm bringing. We'll, we'll, we'll bypass some of the BFR stuff, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me say one thing. The way that they would do this in the research yeah. was you do a set of 30, but leave the wraps on. So with that sort of uh, that example I was talking with, 100 motor units, let's say, mm-hmm. you, you come back for that second set, and, you, and those metabolites are still there. So you've got fatigue fibers to start with. So you might start that set using 50 of those yeah. motor units and end up with 80. And the next one, it might be 60 and end up with 90. <laughs> and you're using a very light load, but you've altered the recruitment pattern. And this is the interesting thing then is that because of doing that, you're actually going to use those high threshold motor units you wouldn't otherwise call upon and then produce tension in those in a way that you might not, at least if you did the same number of reps with the same load without the blood flow restriction, which would be easier. Mm -hmm. But you make the very important point that you can do low load, high rep, like 30% 30% or 50% of one rep max and take those sets to failure. The generally research suggests going to failure is the way to, to ensure you're going to get good growth. And those are brutal in and of themselves yeah. um, without a doubt. So high rep sets like sets of 20 and 30, you can get great muscle growth from those as well. So and you can, you can also do that with like slower, slower reps as well. Right. Yeah, if you do, um, if somewhere around the, from the what I, the data I've been able to dig up, if you around forty to sixty percent of an isometric maximal voluntary contraction, mm-hmm. so maybe half of what max force would be for a static contraction is enough to prevent blood flow into the muscle because you've got more tension, more force in the muscle, um, or more pressure in the muscle than can be overcome by the arterial flow into the muscle. So. So the, you don't get muscle in or blood in, you don't get blood out. So maintaining tension during a set is uh, will, uh, will effectively bring about the same thing. And that's why I think you probably know this from having read the, the Fortitude training book. That's one of the reasons why I suggest people maintain continuous repetitions mm-hmm. uh, because you then uh, you, you change the activation pattern. That tendency that you have, like when the set's getting really hard, and you know, like if you, if you just stop, took a little bit of a break, a breath or two, and let the muscle relax, like the worst case scenario, you see people do this when they're squatting, they'll lock out their knees, they'll try to let their quads yeah. 
you know, get a little bit of a break. That's obviously that could run into problems. Um, mm. But you on the just, leg press, yeah, the, uh, the leg press. <laughs> you get some bad videos oh. if you try researching that. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah, it makes me cringe just thinking about it, man. Yeah. So, but that allows blood flow and that clears out the metabolites just just enough to uh, uh, remove some of that fatigue, so you can get a few more reps. So there's a if you if you go on to Elite FTS, there's an article um, that I wrote called "Rust Proofing the Iron Warrior," and I've got in there um, just some examples of ways that you could basically do kind of a blood flow restriction type of scenario without having to put on a tourniquet or something to to reduce the blood flow. You just would do a set and then hold the weight. So pick a really lightweight. Mm-hmm. and hold the weight in isometric for a 30 or a 60 second contraction and then and then start moving the weight again so you maintain continuous tension mm-hmm. and that will that will be enough and you those are those are very very difficult too those are brutal but you can do that and i can't remember there's a number m- multitude of ways you can configure that but you're doing the same thing basically and that's a way for someone in this case this, this was a, an article about older guys who've got you know joints that have been beaten up for years who mm-hmm. want to find a way to stimulate growth without using the heavy loads that, that tear up their joints overly stress the tendons so kind of a taking a page of the katsu training but instead of having that risk of a you know too tight tourniquet you just you're just basically doing another type of resistance training you're just doing isometrics between regular coupled concentric eccentric contractions normal reps and Love it. Those, yeah, those are really, those are another, another, uh, another type of pain as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I, I have to ask you before we move on to the, the other, the next hypertrophy mechanism, because when we're talking about metabolites with uh, training and, you know, quote unquote, the pump, we all, we, we often hear that that's only training, um, slow twitch, quote unquote, muscle fibers. And you, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, that's not overly quote unquote functional. Um, you have any thoughts on that like argument that people sort of put forth? There's there's a a little bit um, there's a little bit of research. Some of it's kind of obscure, suggesting that you may get some preferential growth in type one versus type two fibers, but mm-hmm. it hasn't been like the the, the case is not closed. No. But the mo- more important thing is that um, ba- basically the the way in which muscle uh, is activated is very very smart. The nervous system is very very intelligent in trying to prevent fatigue. So there's an orderly progression. It's called Henneman size principle. Sort of basic thing you learn in like a, a, a muscle exercise physiology, especially if there's a good a muscle physiologist like myself loves to talk about this shit. So you'll hear this hear this come up all the time. But basically, you start off with low threshold motor units, and at the beginning of a set. And, and you'll actually, the nervous system will rotate through those mm-hmm. and, and then uh, add as fatigue ensues, add more of the, the, the moderate higher threshold motor units. And at the same time, you're also going to see some change in firing rate going from lower to higher firing rates. But then as the muscle fatigues, the nervous system will actually lower the firing rates too because a fatigued muscle acts like a slower muscle, which doesn't need higher firing rates to produce optimal tension. In fact, it would be wasteful to do that. Right. But you move from these lower threshold, which typically are the type one endurance oriented 
kind of postural types of, of motor units and fibers to the high threshold, the type twos. And if you take a set to failure and you're someone who's motivated to maximally activate and call upon all the motor units that are available, you will have called upon the type ones and the, and the type twos, the low and all the way from the, from the, the easily, most easily recruited motor units and the fibers, which are type ones, to the most difficult to recruit ones, which you'd only get. Um, you, you get those near the end of a set. Mm-hmm. And so one thing people will say is that once you get above maybe like 80%, a lot of this, this data is hard to, hard to translate into like what you typically would do in, in the gym with your bodybuilding because the, these, these uh, activation patterns are most typically studied like in muscles of the hand where they can get access to the nerve. They stick a little electrode in there and they can isolate a single neuron and mm-hmm. or several neurons and watch their activity as people do increase force or do fatiguing tasks and that kind of stuff. Um, when you get in, when you get in a situation where you've got dynamic contractions, like a knee extension, let's say, then people start to do EMGs and try to, you know, transform the EMG signal and that gets to be a little bit messy. But generally when you have a heavier load, you have to use more muscle. And that means you're going to end up calling upon a lot of those motor units that are available. The nervous system, like for instance, if you're going to do a set of 12 or 10, you might call upon almost all of the motor units, if not all of them that are there in those first couple reps. Uh The nervous system also is going to turn some of them off and turn other ones on and kind of spread the load. So it's sort of like if you have, a hundred workers um, that let's say, let's say you've got a hundred, hundred motor units total. You might call upon in the first couple of reps, a hundred of those motor units, but you're never going to have all of them activating at maximal firing rates, at least at the very beginning, because you don't need to. And, and it's not a maximal effort. The first rep or two isn't anywhere near the effort of the last rep on a set of 12 to failure, let's say. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll, wrote, you'll have some of those turning on and off and it will be sort of something that literally in the first maybe couple reps, and this is just, this is kind of speculative because a lot of this is from hand muscles, but you're going to see a lot of, almost all those motor units being activated with the heavier loads, but not all at the same time and certainly not all at the maximal firing rate. But as you progress through the set, you're going to, you're going to see more of those being turned on all at the same time and maybe being synchronized. So the term you'll hear people say, and then the firing rates will increase. And you, as you increase firing rates, you increase force as well. So by the end of the set, you're going to see maximal firing rates, which could even be a little bit lower than maximal if there's some fatigue that's there. But the maximal optimal firing rate was probably higher than what you started with. And if you're someone who's really able to dig in and, and activate everything that's available, motor unit, muscle-wise, all those motor units are going to be going in a coordinated fashion to move, move the load. And, and that's the thing. Like you've got concentric and eccentric contractions. And so concentrics are going to be harder than eccentrics. There's actually different areas in the motor cortex that, that um, are turned on during each of those contractions. So you can see literally as you lift one set of motor units will be activated. And as you lower a different set will be activated probably more type twos, if anything, during the lowering. Um, so there's, there's a really highly complex 
situation where the brain's coordinating things. You've got different muscles that are probably being activated depending on the joint signals that are coming back to the spinal cord just to keep the joints in line. Let's say you've got something like the quad where you've got a medialis and a lateralis that are keeping the patella going in the right direction and not subluxing. So you're going to have, and you can even take an take example of, of someone who's really lean and you're doing a knee extension. And you ever look down and look at the quad and you can see like all these, people say it's the fibers, but you can see the, the fascicles mm-hmm. and the motor is like turning on, like the, the whole quad is like twittering all over the place. Mm-hmm. Those are fibers coming on and off. The motor units actually oh. coming on and off. So you're going to have some of that happening, um, especially at the beginning, but probably even throughout even a maximal effort. Because you have to have, if you didn't have some coordination amongst all those motor units, if it was just like all blast on, like, a whole time, then like for a knee extension, you would just go to max extension. You just stay there. <laughs> That'd be it. Like, yeah. So you got to have some immediately go to lockout. Like you would you do like, go, yeah, if you've been, um, if you've had the electrode right. impulses. Yeah. Yeah. If you use E-stem, you just like lock it out. And there's, there's some funny, I've got some funny stories that I've, I've been told because I've done a lot of E-stem on myself. I use that for my dissertation work. And, you know, I did a lot of that when I was in grad school and, and like my, for instance, my advisor, Gary Dudley, who I dedicated the fortitude training book to, he, he told me the story once he, um, he had built something that we built again when we were in grad school so we could uh, travel and do some isometric knee extension work. He had one of these chairs that he built. He just, you know, wood, you know, and some just angled it. So you make kind of a chair at it and a chair out of it and hook up a load cell and connect it to a computer you strap yourself down and then put the electrodes on and then, you know, go to town trying to figure out whatever you want to figure out about muscle fatigue or what have you. And um, with a lot of these machines, they're not really, they're, they're designed for PT settings. So there's, there's a lot of safety mm-hmm. features built in. So you, in order to get to the current, which dictates how much force you have in this particular machine, there's a little wheel you'd have to like roll all the way up and we're using a lot of current. So it'd be like, Every time you have to roll the thing back up, you know, it's just like, so you need to fatigue the muscle going from, you know, zero to whatever milliamps you need to put on the machine. So he would just like, and I ended up doing the same thing. He just pull the plug, just leave the machine on and pull the plug out and sort of bypass the safety mechanisms. And he said once he was, he had the thing up, you're like really max force and like literally had to have himself strapped down in the machine, but, and he was just using one leg. And he just blanked. He wrote something down. It was getting late. And he just sort of spaced. And he was getting ready to do his next next test, trial run, or whatever he was up to. And he plugged the thing in with max milliamps on there. And he literally launched himself forward because his leg was strapped down and his knee extended. And his whole body came up off the chair. And the whole thing flipped. And he landed on his face with the chair on top of him. Jesus. Yeah. So that's, like, that's maximal all-out uncontrolled muscle contraction that e-stem would do your brain doesn't do that obviously your brain would you know would would change that before you end up doing a, a somersault and broke your neck so another guy was uh was trying to add some stem to doing side laterals with dumbbells and one of the things that happens with the electrodes because it's non it's non-physiological is they will move over what's called a motor point which is um which uh, you'll you'll see if like when you measure emgs you get greater a- activity there and that has to do with the, the spatial configuration of the nerve underneath um, in the muscle. So if you put electrode, you're going to use to stimulate the muscle with that electrode will produce more force 
the closer the, the, the electrode is to that motor point because it's getting more neurons, and that's how the electrodes actually stimulate the muscle. It's through the neurons, not the fibers themselves. So he really didn't take that into, into account. So he, he, he had his arm you know, at his side, and he was jank, turn up a little bit of stem. He's like, okay, so I'll print the stem on. He grabbed his dumbbells, and then he, he did the side lateral. And as he did that, the electrode slid over his delts oh. over to the motor point. And he couldn't bring the couldn't bring his arms back down. There <laughs> was so much juice. So he, literally, he said he dropped the dumbbells, and he had to do like a max, like most muscular crab pose in order to get his hands down and like turn off the machine because he had so much, you know, so much contraction there in his in his delts. So yeah, the like the the body is doing all sorts of things all at once. So it's it's an oversimplification there with the you know the hundred motor unit thing, but. The bottom line is that you can take do those higher rep sets, and if you take them to failure, you're definitely going to get a lot of type 2 fiber activation. And some of the research suggests maybe a little more type 1 than type 2, the higher the rep the sets are. Um, one of the things that some of the people sort of, they sort of don't pay attention to, which I like to bring up because it's, um, it's a, it's, the puzzle is pretty complex, is some of the early stuff with bodybuilders when they did biopsies. And actually, Jose Antonio has, has pointed this out in a nice review on muscle hyperplasia, is that some of these early studies found that um, bodybuilders had really big muscles relative to the control, normal, untrained people that they would, they would also do biopsies in and look at muscle size in, had lots of type 1s that were normally normal size. Mm. So average size type 1s, but lots of them. So either they started off with a whole bunch of really, really small type ones and then made those all bigger or something about, and this is like, you know, back in like the nineties where everyone was training pretty much like, except for people who were mensarians doing, you know, heavy duty or HIT, most bodybuilders were doing Arnold Schwarzenegger inspired programs with lots and lots of volume. And so either they start off with really itty bitty small type one fibers and grew them to average size and in doing so, got big muscles that were bodybuilder size, high level competitive bodybuilder size, or maybe something about their training was such that they ended up getting some of those maybe type twos into type ones. And that can happen. People talk about the being impossible. That's definitely been, been documented with different exercise stimuli. Mm -hmm. E-STEM will especially do it. That's for sure. Um, and they probably may have had some hyperplasia, which has also been documented in animal models. So, and there's a, a, just as a, while I'm rolling here, there's a, the most impressive muscle growth study um, in the literature that I know of was one that Jose Antonio did. Have you heard of the, the weighted stretch model they use with quail where they hang? Yeah. The the yeah. So, yeah. So he, he did that. Like normally they just take a load and you know, like 30% of body weight, something like that, and just hang it. And then they would, um, you know, they they monitor whatever the protein expression or muscle size, fiber type, along along the course of the muscle growth. And so, like after a week, they take some of the animals and they sacrifice those and make a measurement. And they wait another week, another week, and that's how they make their measurements. It was just kind of left the weight on there. Um, well, he decided let's let's employ a, little, employ a little progressive overload here and recovery, which we know is important for bodybuilders. So you just can't train every single day um, and not end up to being overtrained eventually. So he had them, um, he, he took the, I think he did like two days on. It was, 
a, a nice a nice protocol, but he, he had a day or two off. And each time he would come back, he'd add a little bit of a load to the weight. So he progressively overloaded and had off days to allow the muscle growth to happen. And it was like over like maybe it's like 350% increase in, in muscle wet weight in like a month. Jesus. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like absolutely ridiculous. 250, 350, there was different, there was a different growth. I think it was 350. I can look it up, look that one up too. But the interesting thing that happened was they started to shift towards type one. Type one, like this is a continuous tension. So it's not like going to the gym and lifting for an hour or two mm-hmm. and then stopping. Like the weight's always there for the day or two that it's on. So that's a, that's a continuous endurance kind of stimulus. And it makes sense to have more type one endurance oriented myosin in those fibers. So they started seeing a shift from type two towards type one. And as the muscle grew, initially the fibers got bigger, exactly what you'd expect. But then after two or three weeks, they actually found the muscle kept on growing, but the fibers average fiber size started getting smaller. So which suggests hyperplasia. Because the fibers were getting smaller, but the muscles getting bigger, so you're probably getting more fibers, and they're just smaller, and that makes sense because when you're doing endurance-oriented things, like a lot of these bodybuilders would do, training in an Arnold-like way with really short rest intervals, um, you've got you've got metabolic stress, metabolic demand, ton of a pump like all the time throughout the entire like those guys would just train until they lost their pump and they'd be done, but it might be 20 or 30 sets. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly trying to get blood in and out so you can clear those metabolites. And if you have really, really big cells, then you have a big distance from the, the capillaries that are outside the cell to get oxygen in to the mitochondria because you're going to have some oxygen being used during the recovery periods for sure and get carbon dioxide and metabolites that are produced out. So that's a, it's a diffusion distance across those cells to get those things in and out. It makes sense if you have a stress that requires blood flow and getting oxygen in and clearing metabolites out to lessen that diffusion distance. This is what you see with endurance training per se. They don't have big fibers. Some cases you see some of the best ones they do. But so what happened at least what seemed to happen maybe with these bodybuilders from like Allway was one of the researchers who did this Jose points them out in one of his review articles. And in this quail study is you got a lot of type one fibers that were a little bit smaller than what you might expect, given how big the muscle was and type one, smaller fibers are better oriented for endurance type activity, like a high volume bodybuilding training or this, this crazy stretch overload, which you really would never do as a person. You couldn't get away with that in a whole body level. Mm-hmm. But the muscles were gigantic too. So we tend to think sort of things, we compartmentalize muscle growth. It's like, well, you do endurance and the, you know, the fibers, unless you're completely untrained, this is, you're going from you know, couch potato to doing something, you don't really get much in terms of muscle growth. Endurance athletes aren't known, look at marathon runners. They're not known for having big fibers because right. there's not a demand there. But you can actually get lots of type 1, endurance-oriented fibers and large muscle mass at the same time, too. That's one program that you can see in people with big muscles, in big, in big, with large muscles, big muscle mass. 
you look at powerlifters, they tend to have really, really big tight twos. A lot of these people may have been gifted in that way, but that's what you tend to see from more strength training oriented, progressive overload focused, less like high volume, higher reps, short rest interval type of training. And that produces muscle growth as well. So you've got different ways um, to the same outcome in terms of the muscle size uh, that could evoke different changes in terms of what you see in muscle fiber type and other aspects of the muscle performance. So the, the muscle is just plasticity is the term for the adaptability that, that I'm talking about here. And it's really phenomenal what the muscle is capable of. It's um, from a survival standpoint, literally your cardiovascular system is super important. Obviously your brain, that's what, you know, kind of brought us to the place we are as being able to have it pretty much any terrain on the planet. But the muscle has to be able to adapt pretty well, you know, to handle whatever uh, stresses the environment might bring on us. And it's just incredible that, that it's got such a range of possible programs that can be set into place to produce what you think were kind of like contradictory um, ways of adapting, both endurance and size at the same mm-hmm. time. Like those seem like those are, you know, it'd be a paradox, but the muscle can figure out and it can do it if that's the stimulus that it's presented with. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode of the Rubbing Muscle Podcast, then I've got a quick little request and a potential prize giveaway for you if you do said request. All I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and type up a five-star review. Just your general opinions of the podcast would be great feedback, but also helps us reach higher rankings, get more exposure, allow me to attract more guests and devote more time to developing a better all-around podcast experience for you. All you have to do once again is go and give us a five-star review on whatever podcast service you use. Let me know that you've got it. And then every single week, I'll be selecting one review to give away a free prize. That free prize will be either one free month of Team Rugby Muscle. That's our world-class strength condition program app delivered directly to your phone. Or if that doesn't interest you, then we've got one free consultation where I'll, I'll go over your training program, your nutrition, and advise you how to best plan for your goals. Even if none of those things interest you, it's still doing me a solid and helping the podcast grow by going and giving us a five-star review. There's no real excuse. It takes like one minute and that helps the show out exponentially. So I'd really appreciate if you could do that. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you in the next one.